There's a podcast that sure all that rocks hard is gold, and they're climbing the stairway to eleven. When they get there, they know the record stores have all closed, but online they can get what they came for. Welcome to the premiere episode of Stairway to Eleven. My name is George. This is John. And this is TR. Some of you may know John and I from the Metalheads podcast. Even TR made the occasional appearance as the Metalheads butler. While fans of metal, we also have a great fondness for rock music in general. And for several years now, John and I have been talking about spinning off this podcast to cover music that doesn't really fit on the Metalheads podcast. To me, every time I think about the beginning of this, I think of us in Baltimore at MDF eating breakfast in a hotel. Do you remember that morning? Oh, yes, I do. And we were throwing around ideas and it's been a while. That I try to remember which MDF that was. Is that the indoor one, I think. Yeah, it was. That was and in I, Baltimore, yeah. Ram's Head, and yeah. the soundstage. I can't remember. If it, oh, it was probably the Thursday night into Friday morning because I left early on that Sunday. Yeah, that was. And so that was like 2018. That. So this thing's been, been knocking around for five years in our head, waiting to come out. But uh, it's finally here. And our good friend TR, a wealth of knowledge as well, is going to be joining us. So get ready. So, this is the first episode of Stairway to Eleven. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, Hey, George, what's with the name? I like to think that Stairway to Eleven is a fairly obvious mashup of two great pieces of rock history. (laughs) Led Zeppelin's classic song, Stairway to Heaven, and that famous scene from the greatest rockumentary film ever, Spinal Tap. You know the scene. This one goes to Eleven. Smoosh those two things together, and you've got Stairway to Eleven. I like it. Yes. It's a little bit irreverent, a little bit irrelevant. (laughs) (laughs) It's all of those things. And you've transcended that fine line between stupid and clever. (laughs) (laughs) And one thing I want to mention before we get started is I want to shout out Thanks to Jay Stevens, who recorded the parody intro of Stairway to Heaven that you just heard at the beginning of this podcast. I planted my tongue firmly in cheek and rewrote the words just a little bit to make it a sort of a modern day homage. Uh, He cranked out that music in in no time flat and recorded it. Thank you very much, Jay Stevens. Well done, sir. Excellent. All right. Moving on to the theme of this podcast. What are we going to do? If you know the Metalheads podcast at all, you know that we can go for hours and hours and it's just crazy revelry. And we're just getting a t-shirt and beer check. Yeah. So this is going to be a little more focused, hopefully. No promises. (laughs) On that note, thank you very much. We're out of here. (laughs) Our plans for each episode moving forward after this one is for each of the hosts to pick a rock album. And this is anything from Elvis to the Stones, ZZ Top, Jack White, The Cars, or 
Steely Dan, I don't know, <laughs> whatever. Any, anything that even remotely comes into the territory of rock music is available. So we're talking about fewer boundaries and more inclusive music that we can talk about here, which is part of the idea. Classic rock, prog rock, punk rock, new wave, alternative. It's all fair game. Classics, classic oldies stuff, whatever. Um, yeah. We don't get a chance to talk about it that much on the Metalheads podcast. And then we do, you know, fairness to our, our co-hosts. They're like, all right, enough of the Jeff Beck talk. And I understand it. Exactly. Uh, I get it. Yeah. So uh, this allows uh, us to scratch that itch and, and cater it to a different audience that might be able to appreciate the, uh, the finer details of rock music that are perhaps lost to the death metal crowd. What we'll do is each episode, each of us is going to pick an album that we want to talk about, try and limit ourselves to like 20, 30 minutes a piece. So we're looking like an hour, hour and a half. If we can fall within that range, it will be a miracle because we've had some pretty long episodes on the other podcast. And we're going to be passionate about these albums yeah. too. Exactly. Let's just follow Mike and the mechanics. All we need is a miracle. All we need is a miracle. <laughs> what we'll do is we'll give you some background on the albums and like any personal stories of our own that might tie in with the history or just, you know, how we came to know about the album and then talk about some of the songs and uh, just talk about rock music. Well, works yeah. for me, right? Yeah. And the idea that, was it, who said it? Was it Lester Bangs? I can't remember who said rock was dead in, what, 72 or 73. At some point, they already deemed it dead. But it does feel like it is at least not even underground, like under the covers, under the ground, almost. And there's deep, not enough. Deep underground. Yeah, deep. Yeah, deep. and I, I tend to think of rock as now, at least, coughing and wheezing and, and using a walker because there's just not many people doing it. But I that's very generalizing of me and i know that is absolutely wrong right. and there and so i th that's another thing that i'd like to bring to this is that there is good rock music still being made it's just not highlighted in the media like you said it's like underground again because mm. everybody's listening to hip-hop and pop and country and whatever yeah it's and i and a lot of these albums we'll talk about are pretty well known i think a lot of people know them but maybe our perspective on them, at least from George and I coming from the metal world, we'll give our reasons why we like them, but then TR is not in the metal world. So we get a different perspective on why he likes these albums. And we, I didn't start out as a metalhead. I was a hard rock fan right from the very beginning. So that's where my roots are. So it's fun to talk about it. Even though people have heard these albums, hey, so what? Maybe some people who haven't listened to them will check us out. We'll drag some of our cohorts from the other side over to listen and yeah maybe you have already this episode here at least one of those albums is going to be known to just about anybody who listens to rock music so love it or hate it you know it yeah oh, yeah and so you maybe you're like ah whatever maybe you'll hear something new or about it or just find one of our stories about it interesting and maybe the next episode we'll have something that you've never heard of before and you find something that you like yeah this is the first episode, so anything can happen. We may pivot. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is quite fluid. Yes. <laughs> like I said, moving forward each episode, we're planning on each of us bringing an album to the table. However, for this premiere grand opening episode, we thought it proper to use the two albums that make up the name of the podcast, Stairway to Eleven, 
So we're going to be starting with Led Zeppelin 4, and then we're going to move on to This Is Spinal Tap. All right. Shall we get to it? Launch away. All right. So the first album, Led Zeppelin 4. Never heard of it. Never heard of it. (laughs) What? Who's Led Zeppelin? Who? So Led Zeppelin 4, kids, was released on November 8th, 1971. As the unofficial name applies, this was Zepp's fourth album. It was not named Zeppelin IV. Technically, it was untitled because of part of the blowback from Led Zeppelin III's critical response is what I read on like Wikipedia or whatever. So technically, it was untitled, but the artwork contained four symbols, one to represent each member of the band. Zoso, being the most famous of the symbols, represented Jimmy Page, and also happens to be the name of our friend Marcusan's cat. Yeah. So, shout out to Zoso. Meow. Yeah. Hey, before we go any further, since you mentioned the symbols, does anyone remember where it is on the album? No. In fact, I was I was trying to figure that out because I was looking at the artwork and I was like, I didn't see it on the front. I didn't see it on the back. I think it's on the sleeve. CR, do you remember? Yeah. So, go ahead. Now, at yep. least there it's it is on, on the, the yeah, spine. That and oh, is it on the spine of the? Not on the spine. It's the I'm referring to the inside of my oh, right, okay. spine. Yeah, yeah, um, and it was also on the label of the record. On the label, yeah, of the record. Yeah. I think that's the only place it originally was, but I think it's shown up later in other spots. But I think that's the only place it was. Am I? Am I wrong? Well, or am I right? Does I, I, I think know? it might have been on the sleeve as well because okay. uh, they also talk about Sandy Denny having her symbol in there as well, which was that's the, right the three isosceles triangles. And so it's interesting, and we'll get to this with Spinal Tap too, but the the joke about the Spinal Tap album was like, there's nothing on the album. Yeah, black, it's right? all black. And, and this album, I think Zeppelin wanted to push the boundaries. Like they were so popular and so huge that they basically said, look, we're not even going to put the name of the band on this record. And you can see what it did. Everybody knew who it was, of course. Like, there's nothing on the album, on the outside of the album cover, that would lead you to believe that Led Zeppelin recorded it. And I think that trend continues, for the most part, for the rest of their albums, doesn't it? Is House as a Holy have actually a name on it, or was it one of those banners? Remember how Mm. they used to put the banner on the vinyl? And you'd Mm. slide it off, it was a thin paper banner that right. at least on the one I got, but I don't know if it's actually physically on the album. I don't well, think it's, it's is on physical on graffiti, right? It is on physical yeah. graffiti. Yeah. And presence has it, Led Zeppelin written on it, but it does. Yeah. Okay. And into the outdoor was a paper bag, but I couldn't remember if the, if they actually stuck the stamp on the album cover originally. I, think, mm. I don't know. I think it was a, was, I don't know. I, I don't I think remember. They how, did. They, they, I remember the ones that had the actual the, stamp with the name of the album and the okay. title. But I don't know if they originally came out like that. I remember it originally came out with a paper bag or some of some version of it had paper bags. Right. Yeah. And there were four different covers of it. Yes. That's the other thing. See, yeah. we've already deviated. And it's, yeah. it's absolutely amazing. <laughs> I love it. All right. Let's get back to Zeppelin 4. Sure. So Zeppelin 4 was the best selling Zeppelin album of all time. Topping 37 million, or John just told me that it's now 38 million. Since the podcast started, they've sold another <laughs> million copies. Probably sold about 5,000 copies since we started talking. Yeah. That's exactly right. But I think you'll probably find that most diehard Zep fans wouldn't list this as their favorite. I know nobody here would do that. Not even close. But yeah, probably not. 
Not even close, bud. That's an 80s reference for you. <laughs> Breakfast Club, hello. Yes. yes. And I'm, right. But I'm not dissing the album at all. I'm just... No, it's just yeah. that they've got well, so much good stuff that, you know. Yeah, and I, I think if you all... I don't know if... I'll speak for myself in this case, but I got burned out on this album because oh. I played... God, yes. The crap out of it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. In high school and college, I just played this album along with many others incessantly to the point of when we talked about doing this album for this podcast, one of the things that I wanted to try to do was not ground is no, is to approach <laughs> it with fresh ears. Yeah. Exactly. To approach it objectively. And to think about, okay, let me listen to this album again, uh, having not listened to it in quite a while because of the fact that I got burned out on it. And I have to admit that when you don't listen to something over a long period of time, you, you do gain a new appreciation for the music. And I, having, again, you hear this stuff everywhere. It's on the radio it's on TV commercials. It's everywhere. <laughs> and we've heard it all so many times. But if you just really sit down and listen to it, it's a pretty amazing and impressive album. Yeah. And while it, I agree with you, George, it's probably not my favorite Led Zeppelin album. And it's a victim of its own success, I think, huh? because it was so popular and we did listen to it a, a trillion times. And, and it probably wore out its welcome in a lot of ways <laughs> just because we listened to it so many times. When you go back and you listen to it and you think about the first time somebody put it on their turntable and listened to it in 1971, when the heaviest thing that was coming out at that time was like Black Sabbath, Master of Reality or whatever, it's pretty amazing to think like we've become numb to the fact that this stuff at the time, like songs like rock and roll songs, like, you know, black dog were pretty heavy mm -hmm. for the time. And it's really unfortunate that due to the passage of time and all these songs that came after this, that have become part of the lexicon of rock have diluted the power and the massiveness of this album and it's it's a shame and that that's happened to a lot of bands and uh -huh. it's happened to a lot of albums bands that kind of set the standard and and then the standard kind of takes place and then that original level that standard that original standard kind of gets diluted a little bit and it falls a little to to the point where it just doesn't have that same level of newness and the same level of impact that it had when it must have, when I can't imagine I was three when this came out. So obviously I don't really have any recollection of hearing this on the radio for the first time, but I have to believe that when this came out, people were probably pretty astonished. Yeah. One of the things that, that I wanted to find out about this was like how old everybody was when this album came out. And Paige, who was the oldest of the band, was 27. And Jones and Bonham, or no, Bonham and Plant were 23 and Jones was 25. So these guys were all under 30 and they, and they made this album. Their fourth album, it's just, it's pretty astonishing. As many times as we listened to this and as many times as we've heard all these songs, when you think about these young guys creating this album, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. 
you kind of touched on something that sparked a memory to me, which was while part of the purpose of this podcast is to tell people about music that maybe they don't know about or things about the music they know that they didn't know they knew. But for us, it's also a chance to revisit things, like you just said, to go back and try to have something with fresh ears. Or at the same time, I know plenty of classic rock songs that I've heard on the radio, but I only know like one or two songs from a band. I don't know the rest of the tracks. I don't know the deep tracks. And for me, this is an opportunity to explore as well as educate. So I can go and be like, what do the rest of the tracks on this album sound like? And maybe, you know, maybe they're garbage. Maybe that's why nobody's heard them. But maybe, just maybe, mm-hmm. there's some awesome stuff out there that I can learn about. And, I'm, I, and I feel pretty confident in that because how many albums do you have where there's one or two hit songs, but you love the whole album? Oh, yeah, yeah for sure. Oh, yeah. Hey, just to put in perspective to emphasize what George and TR have said about this album, I'm going to just read real quick some of the other albums that came out in 1971. I don't know if, George, you were planning to do this or not. I was not. This is off of Rate Your Music. So this is based on albums ranked for the year of 1971 for rock. Actually, all albums. This is everything. So I'm just going to read just a few off. Okay. This is what came out in 1971, all right, to put in perspective. The Yes album from Yes, which is regarded as one of their best albums, came out in 71. All right, let's scroll up. Aqualung from Jethro Tull. Yes. Okay, these are some heavies so far. It gets heavier. Who's next by The Who? Nice. Okay. Oh, yeah, later in the year, Yes released Fragile. Wow. I was released later in the year, too. Yes, you were. (laughs) Rolling Stones. (laughs) Yes, you were. You were actually... I escaped, really. You were unleashed to the earth. (laughs) Yeah, you were unleashed. You were released about nine months prior to that. Sticky Fingers from the Rolling Stones. Wow. Pink Floyd's metal. Mm. This is oh, I haven't even got. Now I'm reaching the top five. David Bowie's Hunky Dory. Nice. Black Sabbath, Master Reality. Huh? I'm gonna throw this one in just because it's the number two album. Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. That album was huge. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the number one album ranked for 1971 at Rate Your Music has 41,000 ratings. It's Led Zeppelin four. <laughs> so people have wow. that album number one over all those other albums I just mentioned. That's how good 1971 was. Yeah, even well, if you don't like those bands, those bands were huge. Yes, and for the, so that's really saying something because those albums that you listed, they're all massive. They are, yeah, they're incredible masterpieces by each of those bands, which were all huge. Yeah, and now mind you, this is rate your music. So this is people rating them, but when you have yes. forty thousand ratings, I think it's safe to say, yeah, that. And of course, there's an algorithm involved to to base the ratings and to come up with the right scoring. But our lives are dictated by algorithms. Algorithm, yeah. Oh, yes. But just to say that people put it that high with those albums is, and now the funny thing is like Marvin Gaye's album is actually has a higher rating. It's 4.15, mm-hmm. but it has 24,000 review ratings. Whereas Led yeah. Zeppelin has 41,000 has a, and it's, well, rate, it's average was, of 4.09. So right. the average weights up higher because there's more yeah, ratings. And it's also quite a different genre. Oh no, this is for all this on. I just went with everything for the year. Okay. And it just go with rock. Just yeah, everything. Yeah. You know, okay. Just but Marvin Gaye's album. That album is Oh yeah. I was huge. about to say, what's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> wah, wah. Just one quick thing I'll ask. Where is before we delve in, I think this is actually important. 
where is this album in your discovery of Led Zeppelin? Now, this was my band. Once I started listening to them, yeah. nobody topped this band. Going almost through grade school, into high school, and into college. And it started waning, though, as I got into junior, senior year of high school. It was waning fast because I was getting into Rush. I was getting into David Bowie. And yeah. it was, I was well, in the yes. Let's, let's not forget Van Halen. No, I had a love-hate back then with them. What? David Lee Roth just, uh, he oh, like, dude, don't say that. I'm saying it. We'll get, we'll get <laughs> yeah. another episode. Yes. Uh, but Led Up was my yeah. top dog. Oh, but... dude. Yeah. I'm with you there because for a long time it was the same for me. Like I yeah. was all about Led Zeppelin in, in all their forms because yeah. here's a band that is incredibly diverse in the musical output that they did just from the acoustic stuff on Zeppelin three to like some of the more progressive tracks on on presence to like the bombast of zeppelin one it's really incredible when you look at the diversity of the music that they put out and to go from something like when the levy even on this album when the levy breaks to battle of evermore to rock and roll to going to california all of the, the just the diversity on this album is really impressive uh-huh. So this was my very first Led Zeppelin album. I got it for Christmas. It was at my cousin's house. I'm not kidding you when I tell you this. We played Black Dog, I think, 20 times in a row. (laughs) Nice. Our parents (laughs) had to have been hammered because they were just laughing at us, and we were dancing like dumb kids. And I was... I find it very impressive that you were able to dance to Black Dog because... Because that's one of the things that I really like about that song is the fact that you almost can't count it out. No, it's actually a tough song to play. It is. That is the first Zeppelin riff I learned. Yeah, but it's the drums, one of the only ones I learned. <laughs> the drums are at a different time than the guitar, and that's the funny thing because it, it when you when you start to try to count it out, it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up, and yet the drums that that's the incredible thing about this band. They made this stuff sound easy, and when you really listen to it, you start to think about okay. Well, okay, are they adding an extra beat here? What's going on? What is the time signature of this piece right here? Because yeah. it's not immediately apparent because it's very peculiar. And yet, it's in the full ESB it, tempo. Yeah. <laughs> when you when but yet when you listen to it and you listen to the drums because the drums are very it's it's smooth. You don't notice anything, but you it, it's really amazing to me. And that's one of the one of the things that I love about this. So. so one of the things I'm going to do on this podcast is tell you you guys like the things I love about this album. And, oh, and I of, actually want to hear what you hate about the album. I'm sorry. I, yeah, I no, you don't, I don't, I don't care for that. I'm not no. a hater, but no. that's that was one of the things that I love about this album is the odd timing of Black Dog. Mm-hmm. It's just a, it's a peculiar thing, and yet, you no, know, it it became very popular. And people were attracted to it, but yet it was just, it was strange. What else is, what sounds like that riff? Nothing. Yeah. Okay. So hold that. I, I want, I want to hear all that. So mine's, my first is Zeppelin four. George, what's your first one? Mine was Zeppelin four as well. And I got it on vinyl. Me too. Because I wanted, because this was in the early eighties. So I still had a turntable and the dual cassette deck and all that. 
And because I wanted to be able to play the record backwards to hear the like my sweet ah, Satan thing. The same thing. <laughs> I did the same thing. Yeah. All right. So your first one, TR, your first Zeppelin album. You know what? I think what I did was I went through them like chronologically. So mm. I think Zeppelin one was my first Zeppelin I, album. That was a lot of people's also around our yeah. age. So one, yeah, one or four. So my buddy Alex helped me out with this. And at the time I, so my buddy Alex has had a brother that was like a few years older than him. So his brother had all this awesome music, the hand-me-downs so, man. Yeah, exactly. And we would go over there and steal his brother's stuff and listen to it. And so when I started getting into this stuff, and I got to admit, like I was late to the party on a lot of heavier stuff. I started with real not so heavy stuff because you know, I wasn't <laughs> ready for that. It's not so heavy. And not so heavy. It's a little lighter. And so it was a little lighter, you know? So no, so I was like, I started with the Beatles and that kind of stuff. And I liked the early Beatles, like 62 to 66, the Red Album, that yeah. kind of stuff. You want to know the very first stuff that I listened to? Yeah. I taped theme shows off of the TV with my tape recorder. <laughs> so I was into Three's Company, oh, yeah. Magnum PI, Different Strokes, The I Fall Guy. Magnum, the Magnum tune was awesome. Dude. Yeah. So those were the very first things I listened to. In the eight? In the eight team, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, those yeah. are nice, but TR, come on. We're children of. Being born in the end of the sixties and, and oh, match, so man. shows in the seventies. So streets of San Francisco. Yeah. So Canon, so, all those shows. Yeah. So don't worry. I made up for it later, but so yeah, I know. initially I was late to the party. So yeah. So my buddy Alex helped me and he was like, okay, yeah, here, start with Zeppelin one and just work your way through. And so that's what I did. And I went and got all that stuff and listened to it one after the other. So, so I'm pretty sure that Zeppelin four came obviously a little later and back then what an album was like 7.99 you had to save up your money to get like your, your 5.99 6.99 i mean it was crazy yeah. unless yeah. you had a penny and you could go to the columbia house Ooh, record and yeah whatever right tape away. club which i did several times uh, yes <laughs> yeah i did some of that later on but i but yeah so i grew up in in dover delaware and there was a place called the tape hut and there was Sound Odyssey, which was in the Blue Hen Mall. So in the Blue Hen Mall, there was Sound Odyssey. And you would go in there and they had all kinds of cool vinyl and cassette tapes. And I'd save up my money and then I'd go in there and I'd get these albums. And mm. so that was the deal. Yeah, I mine was, was Record I, Town in the Briarwood Mall in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Nice. Uh, Record Town. I was spoiled. Mine was Rainbow Records. And Ooh. I, I fart. Tower Records. Oh, yes. Yeah. They were from California originally, but they yeah. spread like wildfire before they disappeared. Yeah, I eventually was a disciple of Tower. Tower yes. was, God, it's so good. All right. Are we ready? <laughs> yeah. We well, so, you know, what I wanted to say that what made Zeppelin for such a formidable release, other than these many classic songs that we've mentioned, is the classic of classics, Stairway to Heaven. Oh, yeah. This song is both epic and timeless, but also overplayed to death. Yeah. And to the point that some guitar shops jokingly post signs banning customers from <laughs> playing the song. If you don't believe me, just watch Wayne's World for a funny example 
of oh, yes. of those signs. I've actually seen them before though in 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 stores. So yeah, if you start playing, dee, 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 which I can, I, I do know like, like the part up until I don't know the first couple of minutes anyway. But uh, yeah, you start playing that, ain't having it. it uh, on the one hand, it shows what a massive smash hit it was. And also that it gets on people's nerves sometimes when they hear it so much. But I wanted to mention that my only real anecdotal story for this song, or this album even, other than the uh, My Sweet Satan bit, <laughs> was that uh, Stairway to Heaven was predictably my class song of the year I graduated high school. <laughs> it seemed yeah. hokey back at the time, but given what 80s music was popular then, I think we did. I think we made out okay yeah, with that actually, one. Actually, that's pretty good, yeah. <laughs> I think that's it was the last song. At my eighth grade, we graduated. Uh, I remember the girl I danced with still too, and that was the last <laughs> song that was played. And wow. everyone was into it, and I was like, "Wow, this is a long song. I'm getting yeah. to dance with her for this song." Yeah. yeah. Well, if you're gonna pick a dance partner that you want to be with, seven minutes and fifty five seconds is a pretty good long time. So. I'm pretty sure I was not her first choice, <laughs> but she was kind enough to stick yeah, it out. Stick so. it out, yeah. <laughs> anyway. That's another thing I love about this album is the build of Stairway. Yes. It just builds and builds and builds. And that was the whole idea, right? Paige wanted to make a song that starts real quiet and keeps building and then just freaking rocks at the end. It just blows up. And he did it. And plus it was, it, it, the song was popular and there's a mystery to it. I remember the first time I heard that song, I felt like something something secretive was being revealed somehow. Like you're walking into this thing where elves are doing some sort of secret dance and you're like present and you're watching this somehow. And Ozzy's and outside the window going, exactly. <laughs> and you gotta believe me now. Yeah. So it, it, that's the whole thing. There's like a mystery to that song. Yeah. That we take for granted now, but when you listen to it and I have to believe like when they first started putting this together, there had to be like an excitement in what they had unlocked because you, when you listen to this song, you feel as though there, there are certain songs when you hear them, you feel like it's obvious. Like how did this not get put out sooner? There, there are certain songs like by the Beatles where you're just like, how like it, this is so obvious that it's just it makes sense and you just can't believe nobody figured this out earlier than this that's ed sheeran's problem right now <laughs> he lucked out he doesn't have to quit playing music yeah <laughs> there, there was the other thing i sent to the podcast thing about the living after midnight the riff from that there was a band i don't, I don't even remember the band now. it was only like a, a week ago that i sent this but some band that nobody's ever heard of before or since they were on some like top of the pops thing and they played a song and the riff was straight up exactly living after midnight, but it came out like before living after midnight and people are like, uh -huh. I think. Yeah. Yeah. The rest of the song's not close, but that riff is pretty close. Dun, 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 dun. There are without going off the rails too much here. slight differences not to the point of being exa exaggerating vanilla ice to when he said no mine's different it's sampled entirely but different yeah with an extra yeah. beat yeah. i've got an extra duh in there 
it's close, but it's a little, there's a, just a slight bit of separation. And then the song obviously is not the same after that, but I was like, wow. But how has that never been a lawsuit that we've heard of? Because you would yeah. think somebody at some point, so who knows, maybe there was, and we just didn't hear about it. Anyway. Yeah. Stairway is interesting because taken scientifically looking at this song, it's eight minutes long. It's not like verse, chorus, verse, chorus. It's not what you would expect for radio fodder. Yet right. it's this huge, massive hit. Yeah. Like for the longest time on FM radio, and I want to say over 20 years, maybe even longer, I guess it would become then classic rock radio at that point when the FM rebranded the style of music. It was the number one song every single year. And that's not just in one locality. I think that was on a lot of radio stations in all major markets. It always ended up being the number one song requested every year on these kind of FM. Now we call them classic rock stations. Back then they were just FM rock. That's all they were yeah. called. Yeah. So they all had right. something special. Just <laughs> yeah, a tad bit. Yeah. It's a tad bit. Yeah. I want to just go through some of the tracks. We've pretty much mentioned yes. them all. Black Almost, Dog, yeah. Killer Riff, about a dog that wandered into the studio. Rock and Roll, another classic. Broke my heart when it became a car commercial. What was that, like Lincoln, probably? I think it was Lincoln. I don't know. But you know what? I, here's another thing I love about this album. The propulsion of rock and roll. That song has propulsion. Yeah. And, and I think that's one of the things about that song that when you hear it, it's okay, here we go. Boom. It's 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 on. Bow. You know, it's like, you know, and it's just pow. Like, it goes. And I think the funny thing about this is like, this is just like blues yep. with like rocket fuel. Added. <laughs> it's basically Chuck Berry and it screams of that late fifties rock style yeah. rockabilly sound because right. it's, yeah. just, but with like distortion and just like yeah. extra oomph. Huh? Yeah. But the whole back end of it, the bass and drums, when it, when you hear it with the guitar, it sounds like you're listening to a amped up song from the late fifties. Yeah. It's well, really their homage to that. That's, yes, that, that, that's the progression of, of music in general. It started off with a 12-bar blues thing, and then everybody did that, and then somebody changes a little and speeds it up, and eventually you've got the Ramones taking the Beach Boys and playing them really fast. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. And they invented punk rock with the Beach Boys. TR, you mentioned something when you said, all right, let's go. If anyone's familiar with the album, The Song Remains the Same, when the show starts in Madison Square Garden, if you listen very carefully, you can turn it up or get your headphones on somebody on stage yells out all right let's go and john bottom starts with the drums it's actually really funny you should say that because wow, that's yeah. actually how the live album starts when you listen <laughs> yeah nice and then we've got the battle of evermore which in itself is a great song but, uh, oh, yeah. if you haven't heard it you should listen to the heart version as well yeah i would agree and or at least the the, things- the the uh Wilson well, sisters. Anyway, them? I don't know if it was yeah, actually right. hard, yeah. but what do they call them? Love mongers or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. So one of my, so this is another thing I love about the song, the haunting vocal harmonies on battle of evermore, like mm-hmm. the, just the harmonies, like the dissonance and the, just the way that they made the harmonies on that song are haunting and chilling at the same time and it still gives me goosebumps when i hear that song and i listen closely to the harmonies on that song it's 
it just, I can't imagine being in the studio when they put that down because Mm -hmm. it had to have just been like chilling when they did that. And that's, I, I love the fact that they're using mandolins. Just, it's really, it's an unexpected song from this group to do something like this. Not so much given the fact that they just did Zeppelin 3 and they did a lot of acoustic type stuff on that album. This is not a surprise, I guess, given that. But given you come out of Black Dog and Rock and Roll and then bam, you hit Battle of Evermore and you're like doing like this acoustic mandolin song with these heavy duty like haunting vocals. It's it's pretty amazing. And yes, the heart version is awesome <laughs> yeah. i'm gonna i'm gonna take it back further chair actually i think i've read that they were trying to do the crosby stills and nash young thing on led Zeppelin three but i think this was in the band before that you go back to the first album black mountain slide he already is doing that with this that kind of dark acoustic folky yeah. thing it's a little bluesier but it's right. there and it starts creeping in a little bit on ramble on just yeah. a tiny bit and then yeah yep. you're right they hone it on three but to me i agree it's dark it's foreboding and it's by mistake because jimmy page had never played a mandolin before he picked up john paul jones's mandolin in the studio and just started playing and then this song gets written and (laughs) you're right the duet between robert plant and sandy denny from fairpoint convention is just it's unreal you don't notice her singing until you really hyper focus on the song yeah, it's. I don't know about you guys. I have to. Be, I want to mention this because we've passed up. We've moved past Black Dog, but I do want to say this. To me, it's the greatest acapella intro to a hard rock album. Robert Plant. Hey, hey mama. It's recognizable. That's true. Yeah. But while he was already honing his craft on the first three albums, to me, this is a song where he said, "Hey, everybody, I'm fucking here." <laughs> I'm the best hard rock singer in the world. Yeah. And you could suck it because you'll never be able to do what I could hate the balls to come out. Oh yeah. With that on the very first song. And well, it's the and whole song. Yeah, and exactly. So I wanted and, to make and, sure I got that in. No, so. you know what? It's it, so here's something that like, when I think back to being a kid in the seventies and I think about like vocalists at that time, there were, I don't recall very many vocalists that were in the stratosphere like Robert Plant was on this album and even earlier albums as well. But just when you listen to this album and you, (laughs) what to me was like kind of caterwauling at the time, like when I was a little kid, I just thought I'd never heard a man sing like this. I I just, I'm thinking back to my earliest recollections of, what led Zeppelin like being a little kid and hearing this on the radio and being like, like a really young child and hearing like, this is a man singing like his voice, like the highest possible register that you could think about. And, and just like thinking to myself, nobody sang like this other than maybe like an Aerosmith was like years away yet. I mean, mm-hmm. but you're not even going to get to dream on till what? 70. Okay. Yeah. But think about like early seventies. Wh- who else was doing 
high guess, falsetto register uh, other than john anderson who was like in yes who was not singing like really blasting it right he no. was like he was more of a like a kind of a, a lighter singer yeah like a hippie singer <laughs> compared to like darn hippies like hard yeah. i'm just wailing right like, i'm just like wailing so i can think of one guy okay. his voice was not at that high register but he had the same power this was pretty much roger daltrey's prime yeah he, but he didn't have the high register. No. But he had the power. There's yes, no doubt right. he could, he could yes. compete on that level. And I thought of that because I'm thinking he's outstanding on who's next. Some yeah. of his screams on that, you're like, whoa. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The screams are there. But he, he just, his register is different. That's all. Yes, exactly. And so when you think about what was coming out at this time, nobody, there was nobody that I can recall that was singing in a register like Robert Plant was. Until White Snake came along. <laughs> no, no. Uh, you just meant. Thank you for mentioning that. Ian Gillen would be another one. Yes, that's purple. right. He oh yeah. Shriek. He, he was shriek. more of a shrieker, right? Like he, he didn't could, sing like too much in that register, but he would shriek in that register. But he could get up there. Yeah, he definitely could. But he couldn't hold it. Yes, Th- that's all I could think of. Yeah, certainly not Ian Anderson from Jethro Tull. No, or, no. or the guys uh, from Pink Floyd. None of those no, guys. Yeah, that wasn't happening. And no. certainly not Black Sabbath. They weren't shrieking around. Yeah, we forget about that because we've lived through everything that came after this and Guns N' Roses and everybody else. It's now it's de rigueur like for rock bands to have some shrieking high dude. But at the time, nobody was doing this. And I think that's it's another element that we forget when we think about, like, when we talk about these bands, we've heard all this stuff so many times, and they set the standard, and we forget nobody was doing this at that time. And it's really a shame that, like, it became such a standard that, that when we look back on it, we forget, like, they were, like, some of the first people to do this. Yeah, even Dio. When he finally hooked up with Rainbow was a much lower register. Yeah. Freddie Mercury at some point in the seventies would start to Yeah, a little bit. To hit a range that was he I mean he stayed in the same range. He just was right. the best in that range ever. Yes. Agreed. For rock. But yeah. anyway. So George. All right. Are we gonna are we gonna do Stairway to Heaven more? No, nah, we already talked about okay. that. So I'm gonna move on to Misty Mountain okay. Hop, which to me, is probably my second favorite riff on the album, and this was John Paul Jones's piano riff. It's a pervasive earworm that gets stuck in your head, and, and then Plant took us to Mordor, and, and, and it's uh, very, it's they're they're dipping to psychedelia a little bit with the rock because when you listen to it with the lyrics, you're kind of like, this is not what they've been doing already. They've been doing the blues thing, and now they're venturing a little bit more off, yeah, like a medieval kind of Hobbit. Yeah, they, they get credit for, they're one of the bands that started Hobbit Rock because yep. Battle of Evermore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's where, like, a lot of the, the uh, there's a fair amount of this album that lives in that world. Yeah. Well, for any of you metalheads who hate folk rock or folk metal, now you know where it came from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then we have Four Sticks, which to me is my least favorite track on the album. Yeah, I'm with you there. You're both so wrong <laughs> so wrong i like the i like the bottom drum stuff but it doesn't have it doesn't have the hooks to me while everything on this album is great I'm, and i'm not saying it's a bad song i'm saying of the eight tracks this is my least favorite yeah the epic feel like alarm is sounding right now that the, <laughs> i will the, say i really like the middle section 
where there's like the like right before the solo there's a really cool section there that I really like, but a lot of this is, I don't know. It's annoying. That's, it's okay. Uh, that's the it. whole point. It's almost, it, this is almost rock in opposition a little bit, TR. This uh, has a little bit of a Rio vibe to it because this there's, it's a reverse song. They avoided the hooks to do this. And by the yeah. way, he plays the song with four sticks in his hands. Yeah. That's the beauty of it. We all have our favorites. Don't worry. Sure. I'm, men- I'm mentioning my least favorite coming up. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Next is going to California. Uh, is that your least favorite? Oh, God, yes. Really? Okay. I so, like it. So I do like it. And I, I kind of wonder, it's interesting because, again, I wonder if like songs like Battle of Evermore and Going to California would have even existed if they haven't done Zeppelin Three, Because you've got these acoustic songs that pretty much didn't exist prior to Zeppelin three, like Zeppelin one and two were pretty heavy and they're pretty like consistently rock Mm -hmm. and heavy and Zeppelin three comes along and you get all this acoustic stuff that like people were like, what the heck is this? And then you get Zeppelin four, which kind of ends up being like a combination or like a mixing of, okay, these you've got these ingredients from Zeppelin three that are acoustic and then you've got Zeppelin 4 where okay let's bring in some of that acoustic stuff and we can let that we can let that live and breathe alongside of like rock and roll which is this heavy propulsive thing and then boom battle of evermore you got this four sticks bam and then you've got going to california which is like this acoustic-y, like chilled out thing mm-hmm. which i don't know that they would have done prior to zeppelin 3 that they were capable of it obviously but i don't know if they accepted the concept of having that level of diversity in their music and by this point in time they have accepted the idea that like yes we can rock out and do this rock and roll thing but we can also have these acoustic numbers that are have some impact and some heaviness to them but also like they're chilled out and also bring like this other dimension and this other texture to the album. I actually think they would have John Paul Jones, who doesn't get enough credit for being a writer in the band because everything says page of plant, but he's been involved in a lot of their stuff and he gets more writing credits as time goes on, but he was their keyboard piano player. He played their mandolins, acoustic guitars. And that was all his stuff that he was doing already. And so I think his influence, I think, is, let's be honest, the reason Jimmy Page plays a mandolin on the album for the first time is because they were John Paul Jones's mandolins. So I think at some point it shows up. Maybe it doesn't show up to the magnitude that it did on Led Zeppelin 3. They don't do it. But this idea that they wanted to be like Crosby, Stills, and Nash Young just proves that all bands were looking to do something to catch a wider audience. Uh I think they would have at some point. To what degree? Who knows? But right. I think John Paul Jones's influence is greatly understated in the band. Significantly understated. I think everyone just saw it's page and plant. Uh, so. The most important guy in the band was John Paul Jones. I don't care what <laughs> yeah. anybody says. Yeah, he's the only one that kept everything going when kept everything going. Into yes. the outdoor happened. I mean, that album probably wouldn't have come out if he hadn't been there. It probably should just really be his solo albums, to be yeah. honest with you. Anyway, so, so got- you guys like this album? I yeah. Song to me, it's their pop song on the album. I don't have a problem with that. Yeah, 
I oh, like it. Uh, the subject matter is lame to me. Yeah. You know, oh, we're going to California to look for a girl. I was like, oh boy, I've heard that story before. Yeah. <laughs> it's what music is about. Yeah, it's uh, got to be about the babes, dude. That's what it's all about. That's why the first guy picked up a guitar and said, girls like yeah. guitar. Me yeah, play. But, <laughs> but then you watch the movie. <laughs> then you watch the movie Almost Famous and it just tweaks it a little bit for you. you so anyway. All right. So the last song on the album, When the Levee Breaks. Now, yes. I'm going to say this is my second least favorite song on the album. But hey, TR and I are continuing the podcast on our own going. But the point here is that (laughs) I really like the song. The point is that the other six songs are so freaking awesome that Uh, when the levy breaks, it's such a cool, I'm not dissing it at all. Okay. Okay? It's such a cool, like bluesy kind of thing. It's a great song. I love the song, but it's not Black Dog. It's not Stairway. It's not Battle of Evermore. So just chill yeah no, that's cool but you know what <laughs> this is another one of the things that i love about this album the massive sound of the drums on levy the whole actually the whole album is yes yeah, true but it's it's really apparent yeah. on the opening drum riff on this song because do you, got, it, do you guys know just, the reason why yeah, because they were at Headley Grange and they hung the microphones from like a story up in the stairwell in the middle of the stairwell yeah like and then he played out in the lobby yeah, he wasn't actually in with them. He played in the yeah. That's why it has that big, huge boom. Yeah, when it starts. Yeah, it's incredible. It's just yeah. and they've said like this riff has been sampled so many times, and for good reason. Just the recording of this riff, this drum riff, is so huge, and just when you hear it, it's just I don't know. To me, it's one of the high points of this album is the recording of this drum riff. That just sounds so huge. Like you just get punched in the head when you listen to this. I just, I feel like that's one of the, one of the great elements of this album. And there's, there are a lot of great things about this album, but that's even, that's like that, that ride that to me, that's like some of the cream that rises to the top for me. It's the first hip hop beat. We'll ever. get the cream next yeah. episode. All right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm with you with, on this one, TR. I, I don't know if this is my favorite song on the album, but it's close. It's a cover for a rearrangement oh, right. of a, a cover. Right. Yes. So it's not a traditionally arranged type song, which you can get away with without having to right. put so out credit, any royalties. The original yeah. People. Yeah. But they do, they eventually do credit the yes. Memphis Mini and Kansas Joe McCoy from 1929. Yeah. But they, it's a blues song that's been hard rocked out hard. I'm transitioning us into the next album. Yes. Hard rocked out. <laughs> and it explodes. You're right. And they do some really cool kind of guitar effects on this and his vocals. They do some really yeah. cool. Oh yeah. Of, there's all kinds of backwards guitar stuff. And yeah, it's, it's the, just, almost like the Steven telephone thing is going on a little bit here. Steven yeah. Wilson, how he uses a telephone. <laughs> yeah. it's like, and uh, so we haven't even mentioned Robert Plant's harmonica playing is actually pretty good on this. Yes. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because it is, it's, it, he was like his harmonica playing throughout was really impressive. Yeah. I, now, I'm going to ask this question to George uh, because I, unless George, you will appreciate me asking this question. It is amazing that on this album, and it goes back to the first album, to this album. So 69, 70, 71, four albums in three years. I don't know many bands, maybe The Who, possibly, that sounded better production wise. Big bands like this, because. Uh-huh. Les Up Three is a little off compared to the other three albums production wise. But Jimmy Page is producing all these albums. 
They sound big. The, you can actually hear the drums on these albums. I bitch about 70s albums where the drummer basically is in like a grave buried mm-hmm. six feet under. You could barely hear the drums because they mixed them down so low. Yeah. And everybody in this band, you can hear them. Nobody everything. puts Bonham in the corner. Yeah. <laughs> Bonham's putting everybody in the corner. <laughs> That's right. So I'm curious what you think about the production on this album. Because I, and the remastered version is even better, which is hard to believe. I have the ones no... that came out, the double disc, triple yeah. disc things that came out eventually on these. So Yeah, I got the, I got the vinyl ones. Oh, I bet that sounds awesome. But no, I got no beef with the production. Got no beef. I was going to say, geez, this album just, it's pops across the board. Yeah, no, it's great. No complaints whatsoever. It's never even crossed my mind with this album that I would complain about the production. (laughs) That's what I wanted to hear. Because there's a lot of shitty sounding albums in the 70s. Some really bad sounding albums that are great albums, but you're just like, oh, really? Yeah, and, and I'm known for being a bit of a production snob on the other podcasts, so that's why John is asking me that. Yeah, I'll say actually the one song that to me that sounds different than the whole album is Rock and Roll. For me, sounds slightly different production-wise than the rest of the album. I don't know why. I'm wondering if it's because of the style of music they're playing. It sounds just slightly different. Now, live, it doesn't sound any different when they play it live. It sound everything, obviously, because uh-huh. you're playing live, but they don't change it up to sound like the album, they stick to the sound of what they're playing live, which some bands go to painstaking efforts to change their sound every song live. That's the only one that to me sounds slightly different. I think it's just because it's got that traditional rock and roll vibe to it. The acoustic songs I think sound amazing. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I don't dislike going to California. It's my least favorite, but it still sounds amazing on the album. Yeah. Definitely. All right. So I have two more questions to ask. All right. What's your favorite track on the album? You go first, TR. Oh, thanks. New guy goes first. Yeah. I don't know. You know what? It, it, it really depends on the mood, right? Because there are times when Battle of Evermore is... That's a pretty freaking cool song. Yeah, I think I'd have to go with Battle of Evermore on that. All right. John? This is going to be the coolest day of your life. <laughs> Battle of Evermore. Oh, yes. Wow. It's just, you could hear them playing that song acoustic. You could actually hear them playing that with electric guitars if they wanted to. It, yeah. it would still be cool both ways. Yeah. I'd love to go for the hat trick, but, you know, I just can't not do Stairway. Just because even if, even if it is something that I've heard so many times that it's annoying, every time it comes on, I turn it up. Yeah. And I can't just listen to part of it because I got to get to the heavy part. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, you know. The second half of that song is some of the best stuff they've ever done. No it doubt is. about that. Yeah. And the solo is ridiculous. Now, I will it's say from, this. From, yeah. Has anyone heard what Jimmy Page says and what Robert Plant has said is the actual real sound of Led Zeppelin? This conversation, because Stairway always comes up mm. and they both are like, no. Yeah. It's not that's not what they think of as Zeppelin, which surprised me when I heard that. To them, it's cashmere. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so just throw it out because those are probably two of their, you know, but top five, six songs. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. You would say big time. So anyway, all right. right, So we have two acoustic songs: acoustic and hard rock as our favorites off the album. That's interesting. I like it. Yeah. 
All right, so then, John, do we want to say where does wait, it fall wait. in their catalog? Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Was that the second question? That was the second question. Okay, okay. very good. All right, thank you. This is a John question. I find this a hard question, so I'm not happy yeah. to answer it, and okay. I'm going to oh, be as vague. I, yeah. <laughs> All right, I'll go first then, since I made TR go first. It's not my favorite. My favorite's Physical Graffiti. Like that's not even remotely close. Which is funny because three songs off of Physical Graffiti were recorded during these sessions. You're right. But two of them I can't stand, <laughs> which is really funny. What was that, Boogie with Stu or whatever? Boogie, Boogie with Stu, Down yeah. by the Seaside. And just like, ugh. Uh, I don't know, but Down by the Seaside's not bad. It's okay. But right. Night Flight is also was recorded during this session. Okay. And I like that song. Yeah, that's a cool tune. Yeah. If I had to be fair about this. To be fair. See, I love Led Zeppelin Three. also. That's, I think, my second favorite by them. I'm going to put it. I love presents also. Yeah, that's my number one. So those are actually my top three, believe it or not. People are like, what? Not one, two, and four? No. I would say four would come in. It would battle with one for that four spot. Uh, yeah. I, I do let's up a one a lot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is it, yeah. Okay. It's interesting how far down the list let's up for two is, huh? Yeah. It's good, but it ain't that good. Just, <laughs> anyway. And part of it too is what, like what I said, you, you get burned out on stuff. And I think that's why, like for me, like presence is my favorite album. Then maybe physical graffiti. And then if they hadn't, if they hadn't put hats off to Roy Harper on Zeppelin three, I'd probably like it a lot more, but I can't stand you, that song. Had they, this is TR and I have talked about this a thousand times. <laughs> had they taken that song off and put, Hey, what can I do as the closing yes. song? Oh, it dude. Would, it would be my favorite Zeppelin. Uh, yes. Actually, that is not even uh, close. Yeah. That song to Roy Harper is so bad. It's just, yeah. I can't understand who let them put that on there. Like, just, uh, but so, yeah. So, Zeppelin 4, it's like maybe fourth or fifth i don't That's know somewhere too. in there like right somewhere the yeah just not as good as all the songs are like i don't know i just prefer i think again the whole burnout thing has an impact on this and then you've got i don't know i think a lot of the reason so not everything on physical graffiti is totally awesome right there's a lot of good stuff like the majority it's 80 percent really great and then a couple of songs that is eh, okay yeah. see i only have two that i don't like off that album for it being a double album so yeah i'm like probably 90 some percent but yeah okay I, I, yeah it's still 80 percent on the double album is pretty damn good I yeah thought. exactly right anyway all right, so oh, I'm not gonna i'm not gonna get i'm not gonna get specific i'm gonna just put it somewhere around the middle yeah, I think that's all right. That's you know, fair. Everybody you know, we all there, put Led Zeppelin four in our number four spot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or at least, yeah, somewhere in there. Yeah. Physical graffiti is my favorite one. I lo- I like the first three albums. I really like Houses of the Holy. And what I like I four. So it, it, we're talking about fractions. What I oh, meant yeah. to say was Coda yeah. is my favorite. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the expanded yeah. version is much better. <laughs> yeah. The, I'll go with you there. The, it put it way more in context. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Way more. But, hmm. All right. Any last words before we move on to Spinal Tap? If, so two things. If you've never heard the album before, give it a listen, whether 
you like the band or not to see what we're talking about. If you're coming from the Metalheads podcast, you don't know it, it here you can hear why as Metalheads, we like this album so much. And while TR is maybe not as deep of a metalhead as us, he does like metal. And we all gravitate to those songs because they have a root in early proto metal. And if you've heard this album a million times, you should check it out again anyway to see if you can hear something different. That's all I'll say. It is where it is in the lexicon of greats because it is a great album. Yep. Yeah. All righty. Agreed. All right. Before we continue, I want to put a disclaimer out there. Because all these albums we're going to talk about, depending on how many we talk about at some point, have been listened to and have been talked about ad nauseum. I mean, we're, we're nothing new to the game here. I can get, at least from my perspective, I am far from an expert on these albums. These are all my own personal opinions. So if I botch anything up and anyone who listens, you, by all means, you can send a message and say, hey, dude. You're an this idiot. Is, yeah, this is not what happened. Yeah. That's fine. Because, I was there, man. Yeah, which is funny because actually we would have been there. Most of these people are going to be saying so have, weren't there. But nonetheless, I just feel like I need to say that. There's, there's we All opinions of the Stairway to Love podcast are their own and should yeah. not be blah, 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 yeah, blah. blah. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the key word is here, everything is subjective, not yes. objective. So anyone... Oh, don't take us as take us out with a grain of salt and a side of a beer. So that makes no yeah. sense, but it's not supposed to make sense because of what we're going to talk about next. Hey, we yes. can be both genius masters of the art and complete idiots at the same time. It's a fine line between, between stupid and clever. Exactly. Yes. And we're going to delve into stupid and clever right now. Yes. Take so. This is Spinal Tap. So the next album we're going to talk about is actually the soundtrack to This is Spinal Tap, which was released in March of 1984. It was the soundtrack to the film This is Spinal Tap, which was a mock documentary of a fictional band called Spinal Tap, England's loudest band. And it was a mock documentary that was Rob Reiner's directorial debut. It featured comedians, Michael McKean, Christopher Guest, and Harry Shearer in the lead roles of David St. Hubbins, Nigel Tufnell, and Derek Smalls of the band <laughs> Spinal Tap. These comedians also happen to be musicians. They wrote all the music. They played all their instruments and I think that's one of the things that that really sets this movie apart because they, they weren't faking it, right? They, oh, this is and the they real sing deal. too. They and all they sing. sing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're true musicians. And so I had a little trouble like thinking about this in terms of like just an album. We're talking about this as an album, but it's really the soundtrack to the film. And so what I would recommend for anybody that has not seen this film is you really need to watch the film to get a greater, even greater appreciation for the actual soundtrack. Now, in the film, the this band, Spinal Tap, is that it's a 
the idea is that they're going to follow this band on their 1982 Smell the Glove tour, which is the Smell the Glove is their latest album. They're a heavy metal band from 1982. So you got to think about heavy metal in that time, which was you think about Judas Priest, you think about like bands like that, 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 you know, fit that mold. Not that they're at all like Kiss. UFO or sure. Rainbow. They remind me of Saxon a lot. Saxon, yes. Yeah. So you've got this band that's going on tour, and this documentary is supposed to capture that tour of them going out in the, on the United States tour to, to promote their album. And the, one of the best things about this movie, so there are a lot of things I love about this movie. And one of them is the fact that like all of the actors and all of the people that were associated with this film developed a an entire backstory for this band. This is a fictional band, but they thought long and hard about where this band has been, what they did, how they came together, the relationship of each of the members of the band. And all of those things was thought out before they even started filming. And, and one of the great things, this is completely satirical, right? Like they have decided to try to nail this genre down and they've done it impeccably if you think about bands at this time we all like when we watch this film and we listen to this music we think about we all know bands like this right and for people of our age like this was especially poignant to to i think our generation because it captures a time it it captures a moment in time for this kind of rock band and this kind of heavy metal at the time band this is like when heavy metal wasn't quite like what it became right it was just like the earliest beginnings of heavy metal and like the there's a lot of tongue-in-cheek here it's very close to reality you watch this film and you think wow this is yeah this is hitting pretty close to home and and many bands that have watched this film have felt like this is about us (laughs) and one of the things that that has been said about this film is rob reiner watched like Judas Priest as like a model for this band. And I think it's very interesting that this album was released in March of 1984 and has a song called Heavy Duty on it. Uh-huh. It's also a priest song. Defenders, Defenders of the Faith which, Faith, which was released in January of 84, just two months prior. And they had a song called Heavy Duty. Coincidence? Perhaps. It's just, it's uncanny, right? But one of the things that, that, if you're listening to this album without looking at the film, one of the things that you have to keep in mind is there are a few songs on this album that represent an earlier period of time for this band. Mm -hmm. So during the film, they have flashbacks to the earlier period of this band. So you got to remember this film takes place in 1982. It was released in 84, but was filmed in the 82 timeframe. And so the concept as they're doing this documentary is there's flashbacks to earlier periods of time of this fictional band. And as they show the earlier periods of this band, which like essentially an early 60s element of this band where they have footage that replicates what you might have seen 
for some band showing up on the Ed Sullivan show or one of those early TV shows and they nail it. It's in black and white in the film. They're wearing the style of clothing of that time, the guitars and everything that's that you see in the film is completely indicative of that time period that they're trying to mimic. And there's a lot and, of bands that uh, that trans ascended that 60s, 70s, 80s era, like they started in the 60s, got big in the 70s, and then in the 80s, much like Spinal Tap, we're starting to struggle with relevance. Um, And to me, the first thing that I thought of was Deep Purple and how, like, hush. Yeah, exactly. It's like, that was like, their like 60s pre-heavy metal stuff. And then Ian Gillen. Right. And so when you listen to this album, you're going to hear songs like Cups and Cakes, Give Me Some Money listen to the flower people. These are all elements of their earlier periods. So as you listen to this album, you're going to hear this and you're going to be like, okay, this doesn't really sound like the rest of the album, which is more like a hard rock type of sound, which is they're, more. They're proto metal. Right, exactly. And and it, it's the rest of the songs, I guess you can imply or infer that they would have come off of like their Smell the Glove album or there's also their. So the cool thing is if you go and get the vinyl of this album and you get the gatefold album of this, you'll see pictures like fictional pictures of all the albums that this band put out. And one of them is Rock and Roll Creation, which is one of the songs on this album. And they have some really great album covers that the art from these album covers is really terrific because it really, it's clear that people that made this, they did their homework or they were fans because it's clear that they understood the elements of rock and the elements of what these, what was popular about these bands and what people loved about these bands. And they honed in on that and they distilled it. And that's what I think is so great about this film, because while they do make fun of this band and all these kind of really bad things happen to this band, it's done in the most loving way. And the characters are dim-witted, but they're lovable, you know? Mm-hmm. And you want them to succeed, even though they're kind of dopes. But they're they're passionate about what they do. They love what they're doing. They're rock and roll. And they're they're out there trying to rock out. And anyway, just, just wanted to get across, like, the, the, this documentary kind of format enables them to nail these different early levels of the genre like where they're playing early stuff like cups and cakes and give me some money which kind of like when you listen to give me some money that that sounds like either early stones or kinks almost like a kink song pretty much and then like cups and cakes which is like a like a kind of a light twee kind of british cheesy song and there and we all know these like 60s bands that made songs like that and they they completely nail it and that's what's so awesome about this film is the authenticness of each of these periods like they are able to capture exactly what was going on in those periods of time and and just distill that into what this band was doing and how they became this hard rock or you know metal band so I would say if you actually want to see those album covers, you can also go to SpinalTapFan.com where oh, the yes. whole discography is there. All like 17 albums they've have. <laughs> Even though there's only two or well, three uh, if you no, count. There's, so, there's, yeah, there's three actually if you count. three. Yes. Yeah, but that one's not like 
real. The way I approach this is that this band is fictional and (laughs) the myth has grown so big and so large that it's become real because I actually went song by song Uh and I listed every album they're off of. (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because I find this to be pure brilliance, this album. It is. It really is. And I think TR makes a good point. Actually, I think you should watch the film first. Yes, I agree. And not listen to the album because context. There's a couple songs yeah. off of the latest version of the album that are like America's briefly in the film. It's yes. not really there. It's just a it's a it's playthrough in the studio that yeah. they get into a huge fight. Yeah. <laughs> and which is really funny. And you don't know it if you're not paying attention. Right. You won't see it. And then the bonus tracks off the album, which is really just one song, but two different versions, Christmas with the Devil is not in the film, yeah. but it helps. Which I guess they did that on what, Saturday Night Live? I, I think right? so, yeah. And there's a scratch yeah. version of it. Yes. But you have to, because Tierra said they're talking about the period, but you have to see them on stage playing them. You have to see what's evolving and revolving around them when they show these songs. Mm-hmm. And then you go back and listen to the album and to hear the full versions because you don't get the whole songs the movie yeah and it just puts it in way more context in it and if you like this kind of thing then it would give you a greater appreciation for how brilliant the songs are they actually are really good songs some of them they are they're yeah they're, they're catchy but the lyrics are hilarious yes when you think about tonight i'm gonna rock you tonight right it's essentially a lullaby right the, so when you look at some of these songs and you think about like all the double entendres of various things that are going on in these songs. And, and like, they're, they're like, it's like, it's comedy rock almost, but the music's legit. It's it real. Is, yes, exactly. And, and you know, they're playing it and it's catchy and it's really well done. And the lyrics are really tongue in cheek, but they're hilarious and, and just witty. And I just, I think when you listen to it, if you're not really paying attention to the lyrics, you could miss the whole point, right? Mm-hmm. So tonight I'm going to rock it tonight. It sounds like I'm going to rock you, right? We're going to get down and we're going to do this. But it's really about looking after a baby. And I'm <laughs> going to rock this baby tonight. And, and that's really what it's about. You're too young, but I'm too well hung. It's just, it's funny because it's like, it sounds like something else. But when you really listen to the lyrics, it's not exactly what you thought it was. And so that's what they're really professionals at doing in this. And some of it's just completely ridiculous, like Sex Farm, where it's just, okay, we're just, this is. It's a kiss song. It's a kiss song. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. I modernized it for me. Uh, I went with white snake because the lyrics just scream (laughs) white snake. All right. My, my first experience with spinal tap was not even the movie or the music. The first time I heard about spinal tap was in the newspaper because back in the eighties, before there was internet, everything was analog. You had, if you wanted to go to the movies, say, you had to either call up the recording at the movie theater and find out when the times were or look in this thing called a newspaper. And as a teenage person with few options and no internet, you would frequently <laughs> find yourself going, hey guys, let's go to the movies. And you would go and you'd look in the paper and look to see what was playing. And in Ann Arbor, when I was growing up, there was always the midnight movies. 
And I'm sure no one would be surprised that one of those midnight movies was Rocky Horror. Yes. It always was by us. Oh, yeah. and, it, and it was the midnight movie for years. But the other midnight movie was This is Spinal Tap. And I had no idea what it was. I didn't even, I didn't know what Rocky Horror was either until I actually went. And I was like, this is fun. I had no clue that it had anything to do with rock music or anything, but I just remember seeing it in the paper every week for like years because it was in the theater on the midnight shows for years. Eventually I saw it and I was like, yeah, okay. You know, I'm all in. Uh, I just found it amusing that it was just in right in front of my face for all these years. And I didn't know about it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, I, I caught it when it first came out. Oh, wow. It's just like, wow. <laughs> this is amazing. I love well, that's, this. That's rare because it didn't really take hold until as a real cult film until it went to VHS when people started to discover it a little more because when it came out, it was critically acclaimed, but they're really, I don't think it really reached the audience that it was supposed to reach at the time that it came out. And it just built over years and years of people catching it either on on like midnight shows like you're talking about, George, or on on VHS, people renting it or having it as a movie and discovering it that way. Because when it came out, I don't think it really had much of a resounding impact at the time, which is so many cool things don't. Yeah. And it's interesting because. When you think about reality TV now and some of the things that have like really taken hold over the years, like these guys were like (laughs) some of the earliest purveyors of this kind of concept of this mock documentary concept. Granted, like you had the Ruddles, all you need is cash like that, that came out a little before this, but it was, that was based on the Beatles and it really didn't, it it didn't really have the same level of, I don't know, to me, Spinal Tap is a little more original than the Ruddles because even though the Ruddles, it was very clever and you had all these songs that were like Beatlesque, Spinal Tap made their own music and it wasn't really, it was, yeah, it's based on a genre, but it, it was really like, they came up with all, all everything, the music and the lyrics. And it really wasn't, it, yeah, it was based on like rock and heavy me- music, but they did their own thing and they came up with their own story. And yeah, while it was based on other bands that were like, that they're echoing in the film, it was, I felt like a little more original than the Ruddles. Cool. All right. Any other uh, stories about this? Like when TR, when did you first learn about them? The funny thing is, when I first saw this, I didn't get it. (laughs) And I hate to admit this because I'm like the biggest fan of this movie and I'm like totally into Spinal Tap. He is. It's a little sick, like how much I got into this and like how much like paraphernalia and everything else, collectible stuff that I've got that has to do with this film. And we're going to post some of these pictures of this stuff on the Facebook for you so you can check it out. Yeah. But when I first saw it, I didn't really get it. And I don't think I really understood what was going on. And it took a few watches for me to really fully appreciate like what was really happening. And at the time, I think I didn't really, until you understand the context, 
and you understand like what bands they're kind of, I don't want to say making fun of, but embracing in a loving way, nodding to making, yeah, nodding to in a kind of a knowing way. I think once I got that context, it became more brilliant. So I don't think I got, when I first saw it, I didn't have the, I didn't have the vocabulary of bands that I needed to have to fully appreciate the satire and what they were making fun of. And once I fully understood that and had that vocabulary, it became so brilliant that I was so on board and so fully on with this that it really became something that has become a <laughs> like a central point in my life <laughs> <laughs> yeah all right let's go through some of the songs here and see what people think so the first track on the soundtrack album is hellhole it's hard not to love this one super catchy chorus but what's this about i didn't read the lyrics just going based on the chorus alone, somebody wants to get out of a hellhole <laughs> and they get out of their hellhole and they realize they want to go back to the hellhole. Yeah. <laughs> and just to read you the second chorus, because the quality of writing in this band is amazing, but it's better in a hellhole. You know where you stand in a hellhole. Folks lend you a hand in a hellhole girl get me back to my hellhole that's all you need to know about the lyrical content of the song because it that's how i took it i it's a great track it's from the smell of glove album from 1982 so it's off of that album it's it's a really well written song it really it is. is they start out talking about how the mattress stinks and it's awful like where they're living but then later when they make it big the butler leaves and all these things that like first world problems once they're rich and it's get me back get to me out of here yeah go let me get back to the hellhole and <laughs> it's actually when you break it down a little more it's somewhat of an intelligent song when you think about it it is it uses humor to describe that you know you can make it big but sometimes it's better just to stay where you were from i love it i think it's a great opening track yeah. And uh, did you guys try to think of similar bands? It's really hard because they mix so much stuff in all these songs. It's hard to pinpoint yeah. a particular band. I, I tried. Got I've hard. got a few. This one, I couldn't really come up with one except, I don't know. I hear they don't sound like them, but they have a similar blueprint, like a Uriah Heap a little bit, a kind of hard okay, rock driving song. It's funny you say that because that was one that I was going to yeah. use for one of the other ones. Yeah, but because they they inject a lot of keyboards in the music, actually. Yeah. And I just, again, it doesn't sound like you're right, Heat, but that's a little bit of a similar blueprint, I thought, to some of their early stuff. Yeah, I can hear that. Yeah. All right, so then we have Tonight, I'm Gonna Rock You Tonight, which... And no comma, by the way, on that second Tonight. It's just all one. And, <laughs> it, and you know... That in just the title alone is indicative of an of a inside joke with like seventies eighties music. To me, that's like sort of a UFO kind of thing. <laughs> it, yeah. I just feel like that's something that UFO would write on an, as a song yeah. title. Hey, do you feel? But, but it's circular because it's tonight. Yeah. I'm gonna rock you tonight, tonight, and it's circular. But they have that like superfluous tonight at the end of the title. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel it has a UFO vibe musically? Is it, is it I mean, close to them? Not necessarily, but 
This one was really hard to a, pinpoint. A lot yeah. of their stuff, I I think, in terms of the hard rock aspect, could come back to UFO. I would think that one of the bands that they probably used as a blueprint was probably UFO. I could you be could wrong. A little bit of you could hear a little bit of fog hat in their stuff too. Yeah. yeah, to some degree. Now I should point out this was off their 1974 album Intravenous de Milo. <laughs> <laughs> These are all little snippets yes. if you're going to watch the movie. I, I, they apparently needed an opening track for their. This, by the way, this band did perform live numerous times. They toured actually in yeah. real. I saw them in 1992. Yeah. yeah, they really tour. They have a real band. And they rocked. Dude, that, that, that show was so awesome. <laughs> yeah. And they, when they wrote this, they needed an opening track. And I think they've used this as an opening track on, on some of their shows. So. Yeah. It's a good tune. And apparently oh, about a baby. I did not know that before this <laughs> yeah. show. You listen I didn't to the lyrics. It. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so then we've got Heavy Duty, which both TR and I, mostly TR mentioned is also the name of a Judas priest song. And so that was where my brain went as soon as I heard this, even though it doesn't really sound like a priest song, yeah. um, but uh, you know, it's heavy duty. It's got a weird ACDC, the Jack five, even though it doesn't sound anything like uh. that. It's a kind of prodding. Nothing yeah. really happens in the song. And the Jack is like that a little bit. It just yeah. prods along. That's interesting, yeah. It sounds nothing like ACDC. No, but no. But just but made like, me yeah, think of them. But like big and dumb like ACDC. Right? Yes. <laughs> hey, who are you calling dumb? No, oh, wait, ACDC? Never mind. Oh, yeah. I, I should point out that this was released in 1976 off the Bent for Rent album. So it calls into question, did Judas Priest rip off a second song? That's right. Maybe maybe they ripped off Spinal Tap. Hell Bent for Rent? Yeah. Yo, it's funny. Hell, but yeah. I thought of that. I thought it was the album title for this ripped off from Judas Priest yeah. for Hellbent for Leather. <laughs> so that's a it's good, hard. That's a good, like good call, it, it, it gets really cloudy here. Like it's yeah. a little yeah, gray. You guys are right. There's a lot of Judas Priest in this song oh, for absolutely. obvious reasons. So. Yeah. so then we've got Rock and Roll Creation, which if you've seen the movie, is not the uh -huh. best time to be in a pod. Yeah. <laughs> I think this is one of the more progressive songs of the album. Because, this was like, the one to it, me that was a Uriah Heepish, like is, Demons yeah, and yeah, Wizards kind bit, of thing. Right. Yeah, because there's like these different sections where it gets mellow and then it's rocking and then there's just... It even has a little doomy vibe on, on the riff a little bit before it gets proggy. Yeah, yeah. And it gets a little kind of introspective when he sings, when he's outside staring at the stars. And as they said, like in the movie, when Rob Reiner says about rock and roll creation, uh, what day did God create Spinal Tap? And couldn't he have rested, he rested on, that day, day. <laughs> on that day too? <laughs> so like TR said, and George said, it's off of rock and roll creation. It's also known as the gospel according to Spinal Tap, which was released in 1976. <laughs> Allegedly. Yeah. Allegedly. Yes. <laughs> so these songs, there's a very odd Sabbathy feel on this yes. song a little bit yeah from there's the another Dio, one too from the dio era yeah because it just transitions like a dio-esque first run with sabbath a dio-esque song or even sabbath. rainbow yeah or yeah. later rainbow the last two albums he did with rainbow not the first one it just has that little bit of feel doesn't mm -hmm. sound like sabbath again it just no you know, that that's what i think is what's so authentic about this because they have distilled all these various sources of rock and metal 
And they've put them into these songs, which you could say, oh, yeah, it's tongue in cheek and it's a bunch of jokey lyrics and stuff. But musically, you can tell these guys were they had to be fans of this music to be able to pull from these sources to Mm -hmm. make what they did. And it's you can't you I have to believe that you have to be a fan of this stuff to be able to mock it so thoroughly. Exactly. (laughs) To do it so well. And to do it so effectively and to nail it as they did, it's, you really have to, and I think that's why, I think that's why fans love it so much because they have done it in a way that is, like I said, it's lovingly done, but it's like, it's poking fun at it, but in a loving way. And you can't do that unless you're a true fan of it. Right. I think that that comes through on all of this because you can tell that they love it, but they still see that it's that there's like some stupid aspects to it and some slightly ludicrous to it. Yeah, exactly. But yet, but we still love it. And I think that's what makes this so great. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So the next song is America, which is, was mentioned was briefly in the film and you're going to hate me for this, this for whatever reason, reminded me of a non-American band, but a band North of the border. Okay. Was a little proggy rush to me. Huh. Interesting. Like very at the edge of it. Like just, I don't know. It was just like the first thing that popped in my head. I was like, oh, maybe rush. I don't know. You definitely go through some different little phases of this song, right? There's this kind of almost Simon and Garfunkel intro piece that's, oh, they're coming to America. And then it goes, now it's okay. It's like like some seventies rush kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. And so it definitely, it's another kind of semi-progressive song because you've got these kind of very different sections of the song that, that kind of represent different things. But yeah, it's definitely like, that's what I think is so amazing about this. It's really they put all this stuff together that draws on all these various sources of rock bands at that time. And they really, they got it. They nailed it. Yeah. So I'm going to ruin this song for you guys. When the drums come on into the song and TR saying the heavy riff that they do, because it does, it transitions fast. Yeah. Listen to the drums and pay attention and then go back and listen to children of the grave by Sabbath. <laughs> and then go and listen to the flower people. It's got this really eerie, similar drum pattern. And I couldn't help thinking, I was like, it sounds nothing like Sabbath, but I can't get this drum beat out of my head. <laughs> so anyway, it's, yeah, I think it it puts Paul Simon and Neil Diamond to shame. Their versions of, of their songs called America. <laughs> oh, are God, don't put that in my head. Yes. Anyway. Oh, geez. All right. So then we have Cups and Cakes. As mentioned, one of the retro throwback songs. I tried to come up with something like this, but this wasn't really my era of like 60s kind of music. I probably know some stuff, but I couldn't pin the tail on the donkey for this one. This has got a little bit of a Beatles vibe to it, early Beatles. Yeah. But you got to remember, they they used the whole Masterpiece Theater theme intro with the horns. Mm. If you go back and listen to Masterpiece Theater's intro song, it's similar horns and it's a very English song yeah, when you think right. about it because there, it's almost, it's a lot of pomp and circumstances, very simple what? kind of pop jangle Baroque song that they do. <laughs> yeah. I got the whole kind of 
very English with yeah. the horns, and and it's a very short song. Circa 1965, roughly, when this came out. So well, songs back then were very short because people were shorter back in the 60s. They, didn't, they weren't as big as they are now, and yes, so they cool. needed smaller songs for the smaller people. It's interesting you should say it, George, because we go from the smallest song to the song <laughs> with the biggest title. With the, the biggest, biggest mud flaps. <laughs> and that is Big Bottom. And yes. uh, If you like bass... This is your song. Oh, I yes. did not notice this until today. And I, was, I watched the movie again today so that I was up to date. And I texted these guys and I was like, hey, I just noticed. Obviously, Derek is playing bass, a double-necked four-string yes. bass. I'm like, okay, there's four and four. I don't, okay, whatever. And then I was like, wait, is Nigel playing a bass too? I only see four strings there. And then I was like, wait, David, it's only playing a, he's playing a bass too. I'm like, and I had to yeah. rewind it and watch to be sure. And I was like, they're all playing bass. Yes. I did, <laughs> I did respond because I was laughing so hard when you said, I didn't notice. I'm like, come on, man. That was the beauty of the song. They're yeah. all playing bass. And it gives new meaning to the name of the song, Big Bottom, because it's all bottom end. Yes. It's all low exactly. end. Exactly. <laughs> Which that's what's so great about this, right? Like there's, there's multiple layers of every song in terms of lyrics, in terms of the music, they are able to hit all those buttons in each of those layers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. By the way, off of the album Brain Hammer, which I believe was released in 1973. <laughs> Allegedly. Yes. <laughs> all right. So then the notorious sex farm. Yes. Bring your tractor, bring your hoe. Yeah. yeah, we took something sophisticated like sex and put it on a farm. <laughs> In the words of Derek Smalls. Yeah, you would do yourself a favor to listen to this song. And if you're not offended by double entendres, then this is your song. I will say that this is the original Steel Panther. Steel Panther <laughs> will never be able to achieve the brilliance of this song. That's right. Never. Honestly, Big Bottom and Sex Farm to me, like I said, those are Kiss songs. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. I would agree. And I only mentioned uh -huh. White Snake because the whole song is about sex, and that's yeah. all David Coverdale sings about oh, yeah. his albums. Absolutely. His White Snake. But yes. More Kiss, like a white worm. Yeah. <laughs> the Kiss reference, especially with Big Bottom, it does. Kiss had some low end bottom songs early on. Oh, yeah. I can, you know, I can see, I, I bet they regret that they didn't write these songs. <laughs> well, Gene Simmons probably did write this song. It's just, <laughs> he hasn't told us yet. Now, it should note that this song was released in 1980 off the album Shark Sandwich, which <laughs> received a scathing two-word review. Shit sandwich. Shit sandwich. <laughs> sandwich. You can't write that. Oh, who said I can't that? put that in a magazine. <laughs> That's just nitpicking. That's nitpicking. <laughs> <laughs> really one of the best moments of the whole oh, movie. Yeah. All that was done when they did those interviews. They didn't know what. Yeah. It's clear that they didn't know what he was going to say because their reactions are clearly you could tell that like <laughs> they're hearing it for the first time mm -hmm. and their reactions are clearly like you could tell they almost come out of character because they're, they're smirking so and yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the, those interviews were added at a later point in time because if, if you look at like the, so there's like a four hour cut of this film and I've watched it and it's not all, not all of it's great, but there are some really cool moments. And in that early cut, there were no, none of those interviews were in that early cut. So I think they did those later and the, the authentic kind of reactions that you get in those interviews, I think 
are even almost funnier than like what they're saying because you could tell like they were almost like surprised or taken off guard by it's like improv yeah it was actually most of the film there's a blueprint but i would there's a significant part of the most of the film is actually them laying down a line and then just playing off each other there's no there's not a lot of dialogue that was written for the script i thought i had heard and i don't know tr you yeah, the, seem the to have only, a, it's like 80% written, of the film is just them I, off the cuff. Exactly. And actually the only written piece was for Patrick McNee, who was a legitimate actor who I think needed to have a line. And when he says tap into America, that was the only thing that they wrote because I think he needed to have a script. But the rest of it was completely improvised with an outline of where they were going to go yeah. with each scene. And of course, like I said, they... There was a detailed, extensive backstory for all the characters and all the music and everything else. Like they talked all that out and figured it out in advance to so that there wouldn't be any contradictions as they went through the film. But for the most part, yeah, it was improvised. Sort of like one of these podcasts. <laughs> we have a yeah. we have an outline and then we just run rampant. Yeah. Now we're getting to the part of the album. That's my favorite, which I'm yes. excited now going forward. Yes. So. This is Stonehenge, which aside from being a hilarious part of the film, this is the one to me that is very Sabbath, very rainbow. Dio, Dio in that like it's so mystical and Sabbath because yeah. it's dark. And yeah. I would add in all the other prog rock giants of the era. There's so much in this song. Yes. And this song proves the importance of one hash or two yes yes i have one only one comment to make about this song i will keep it brief i said with stonehenge spinal tap were able to capture the majesty and complexity of a 20-minute prog rock epic into a lean and compact four and a half minute song so much so that they even achieved this brilliance in their live stage setup during their tour for support of smell the glove if you don't know what that means you need to watch this because because george just mentioned the difference between one or two on a, I guess, what do they call those? Quotation Not, marks. It's, I guess a quote. Single yeah, quote, double quote. Yeah. This is absolutely brilliant. The bands you mentioned, yes, you hear Black Sabbath. I, You could even hear Led Zeppelin there in the mandolin part of the song. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's, you could pick out little bits and pieces of Rush wow. and Kansas and well, Genesis and Yes. And, speaking of and Led Black Zeppelin. Sabbath and all these bands on this one four and a half minute song. Speaking so, of Led Zeppelin, as if we haven't. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the the funniest parts of this movie is when he's playing that solo where he's using the the violin. violin. Yeah. And he tunes it. (laughs) Yeah. Because you can tell he's like, something's off. And then he tunes the strings on the violin as he's like using it as a pick and sliding it on the guitar, which is all like poking fun at using a a violin bow on the guitar for for days and confused. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you go back and watch the song, read the same Jimmy page pulls out a violin bow during literally 20 minute 
just meandering of the song <laughs> and he right. it, it's a classic moment but that's what he's doing he's mimicking he's Daisy. Yeah, yeah, yeah making fun of that and it's brilliant because just the idea that he can hear like one of the strings on the violin is out of tune so he fixes the tuning on that <laughs> meanwhile like, he's so... playing the other guitar with his foot that's yeah, sitting in the guitar stand <laughs> exactly it's just so preposterous it's just like hilarious and that's just yeah take so that much. getty lee yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But it, it really is <laughs> but the yeah, highlight of the whole film. Absolutely. And Stonehenge, you're right. Like, it's the most progressive song on the album. And it really captures so many bands from that time in in, in the construction of the song and, and just like the theme of the song and, and what it's about. And yeah, it's just <laughs> it's so perfectly done. Nobody knew what they were doing. Or yeah. where they were going. Yeah, nobody knows who they were or what they were doing. <laughs> yeah. But their legacy remains hewn into the living rock of Stonehenge. So I think the most important question to ask going forward is, are we playing Stonehenge? No, we're not going to do Stonehenge. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to raise a practical point. <laughs> yes. Anyway. All right, we've part of the movie. got two part. more, and these are more the throwback songs. Give me some money, which we mentioned, which to me is like, send me your money. Suicidal tendencies, metal, sorry. But uh, give me some money. Any comments um, on that one? TR nailed it, and he said, it, you could say Beatles, Stones, Yardbirds, but kinks. it's really yeah. got the kinks all it's over It's a kinks it. tune, yeah. Like, the more you know? I thought about it, the more I was like, yeah, this is a kinks song, really. Yeah, especially when he yells out, go, Nigel. Exactly. And, and he does yeah. the solo. Yeah, because in the kinks songs, he's like, yeah, get it, get it. And for those who don't know about this, was first debuted on the British television show Pop, Look, and Listen back in 1965. <laughs> Allegedly. Yes. yes. And it's just so, Yeah. The three old songs, Cups and Cakes, Give Me Some Money, and the one following up after this are just, I remember watching those old shows and I was younger when they would show them on TV again for the first time after X number of years. And it's just wild seeing it all again, them making fun of it. Yeah. So the last song is called Listen to the Flower People. But if you've ever seen a song from the 60s, 70s, 80s, or even beyond, there has to be parens. It's paren, listen to the paren, flower people. So it could just be called flower people. and But they think that they're suggesting anyway that you listen, listen to, to the flower people. The flower people. <laughs> and this one's another 60s-esque. Yeah, late, late 60s Indian because you got a lot it's of It's got sitar. maybe some, yeah, I was going to say maybe it's some, like, yeah, some like, Sergeant Pepper-ish. Yeah, exactly. Like the Beatley, we're getting into this sitar thing. It's And when you see the visual... It's exactly from that period because you've got like these girls in like these mini skirts and go-go boots and they're like back dancing around and they're all in these outfits from the late 60s and you've got the sitar going and you've got these multiple versions like on the video kind of swirling around and it's just so authentically done. It's really amazing to me like how they how well they nailed it. And when you look at the like the production even the filming, the, the way that they did the filming, you can tell the difference between the way they filmed the the Gimme Some Money footage, which was black and white, and it's done in a certain way. And then you've got this like technicolor, listen to the flower people, trippy 
thing going on with it just they've done it so well and so authentically to what was going on at that time it's that's another element of this film that it's just lovingly crafted exactly so my reference points for this the song get get together by the young bloods has a very similar vibe to them it's got mm-hmm. a Jefferson Airplane little bit of vibe. Yeah. I was even a thinking bit. a little bit of Paint It Black with the sitar. Not mm-hmm. that it's a sitar, yeah. I, but it sounds like a sitar in the Stone song. Yeah. I was going to bring up the Rolling Stones. Their Satanic Majesty's Request album is very similar, psychedelic, pop rockish. Even Scott McKenzie's song, San Francisco. Uh-huh. That doesn't sound as much. It sounds more like the song Get Together by the Young Bloods. If you don't know that song, give it a listen. It has that same kind of, kind of, really happy-go-lucky, hippie yeah, intro whisp- that, whispy, that, that yeah. kind of builds up. Right. Uh, now, this was released off of Spinal Tap Sings, Listen to the Flower People and Other Favorites, released in 1967. And Other Favorites. That's such a classic 60s thing to put on an album title. Yes. And is. Other Favorites. Yeah. And it's yeah. actually a, a really well-written song. It is. It really is. And you have to watch the video all the way through because they do some really cool hand gestures at the end, all the band members. <laughs> so. We love you. Yeah. All right, then. So what is your favorite color? No, not your favorite <laughs> yes. color. What is your favorite track? <laughs> Ooh. That's tough. So my band, actually, we. so I was in a covers band for a while, and we used to do Tonight I'm Going to Rock You Tonight. We used to do Big Bottom. And it was always a lot of fun to do those songs. But I think my favorite might be Stonehenge. All right. John. There's no doubt any band that can take a 20 plus minute (laughs) blueprint (laughs) to a prog rock epic and condense it down to four and a half minutes. It's a cozy four minutes. And that translates on stage. Again, watch the movies. You know what I'm talking about. Um, and incorporate dwarves. Well, exactly. Or, Dancing me, dwarves. Little people. Yes. Um, back then they were dwarves. Now they're little people. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Give it the times. Any band that can incorporate Black Sabbath, yes, Genesis, Rush, Kansas, and Led Zeppelin all in the four and a half minutes. <laughs> There's not, no that's, question. That's something, yeah. Yes, and I still want to know what they were doing and why they yeah. were there. So, <laughs> we so, have a Stonehenge monument in danger of being crushed by a dwarf. <laughs> so interestingly, this is just like the first album, The Two of You Against Me. What? Because my favorite is Big Bottom, because uh, that yeah. is the earworm, you know, Big Bottom. Big bottom, talk about mud flaps. My girls got them. Come yeah. on, yeah. you know that you say Spinal Tap. That just starts playing in my head. You know? God, yeah. So that's got to be mine. So once again, I am the pariah, and you guys are buds. No, not at all. I mean, no, no. I just I see how it is. I see how it is. On that song. To be honest, George, like it could have been any one of these songs because yeah. they're all brilliant, and uh, I it could it literally. I think depending on the day, my, my opinion could change. Yeah. I will say George, though, I still think the best lyric on the whole album is my baby fits me like a flesh tuxedo. <laughs> I love to sink her with my pink torpedo. Yeah. <laughs> it's that just is... absolutely, 
It's just absolutely brilliant. I mean, that's, that's straight out of Kiss 101, though. That's so. exactly. It really <laughs> is. How could I leave this behind? <laughs> the cleanest line in the whole song might be the funniest yeah, line. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So here's the tricky question. Where does this album fall in their catalog, allegedly? <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. I'm going to so, say it's tough. Yeah. Like if you want their real albums, obviously this, when you look at their three main albums, which was this album, Break Like the Wind and Back from the Dead, which Back from the Dead really had a bunch of like their own, them covering themselves almost yeah. in different versions of their own songs. But also there were a few other songs on there. I don't know. Actually, the production values when they got to break like the wind were like way better because they were like at that point in time, it was like, oh, spinal tap. Like everybody was all about it. And it was like, oh, yeah, we've got it. Like when they made this movie, they really didn't. It was just like I can't remember what the budget was, but it was tiny. And they made it like with <laughs> next to nothing. The first album sure. had an 18-inch Stonehenge budget. The second exactly. album had an 18-foot Stonehenge yes, exactly. budget. Yes, and you can tell. And also all the guests, there's like a bunch of guest musicians on Break Like the Wind that, that are on that album. Joe Satriani does a solo on one of them. I think maybe Jeff Beck was on that album. There was just like a whole bunch of people that wanted to be on that album and they were and it was Cher was on the album <laughs> it's just like a whole slew of celebrity musicians got were on break like the wind and the production values the level of everything was way amped up compared to the soundtrack there's kind of like like a nostalgic authenticness to this early soundtrack that is hard to beat obviously the clean production and everything and the, don't get me wrong like the stuff on break like the wind is just as funny as what's on these on the soundtrack else why bother exactly so yeah i don't know it's it would be a tough call for me the soundtrack because it's connected to the film it, it there's that almost gives it the edge because it, it the visuals from the film and the story and everything that that goes with the film kind of elevates the soundtrack somewhat the break like the wind was more of a real album where they it wasn't so much based on a film or anything it was like okay we're gonna we're gonna do a spinal tap album and we're gonna have all these guests and it's really gonna be cool and it's big and it sounds awesome and it's terrific and everything but the element the visual element from the film that enhances the songs that are on the soundtrack give it that 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 extra push over the cliff yes i'm obviously going with this one but this could change within the next year or so because there is a new Spinal Tap movie coming apparently on March 19th, 2024, less than a year from now. Ooh. And presumably there's going to be another soundtrack album. Oh, I would think, wouldn't you? I don't know. It's hard to say, you know, I would hope that's true. And you would think by now they would have quite a bit written, but I don't know how much effort and time they've put toward putting Spinal Tap songs together. They better have. They better I hope have. so. Yeah, they better have. I'm expecting something. So maybe next year we'll have another Spinal Tap episode. I hope so. It's, when I found out about this new film, it was funny because 
we put a twist on the original statement of there's a fine line between dread and excitement (laughs) (laughs) because this could go the wrong way. And I really hope it doesn't, but I have great hopes for this film and I hope it really turns out to be really great, but it has the opportunity to not be so great. And I just go down like a Led Zeppelin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Before we wrap it up, I just need to mention there is another movie with these gentlemen. There may be multiples, but another music movie anyway called A Mighty Wind. Oh, yes. Which I, that one I got to see in the theater. And that's more of a folk music thing, but it, it, it does bring back many of the people, or at least a few of the people from Spinal Tap. So if you enjoy this, you should check that out as well. Yeah. And you want to talk about nailing a genre that they also nail the whole folk genre in that film. They get it. And they, and again, you can tell that they're fans of the genre. They're making fun of it, but in a loving way, it's a perfect send up of that as well. So mm-hmm. they, they definitely did that. And they went on tour for that. And I actually saw the tour and it was, I feel really like I had awesome. an opportunity, but I'm, I don't know. I just was stupid or missed it or something, but yeah. Yeah. Was it good? Oh, it was a tremendous show. They had everybody from the movie pretty much for the show. They only, I don't, I think they played like only a handful of shows because obviously it would, it was probably pretty hard. Like they played the big cities, Philly, New York, DC. I think it was just like a handful of shows because you've got like a big production of numerous singers and musicians and everything so i don't think they it wasn't extensive but i saw them in philly and yeah it was they they just nailed it it was so good nice all right at the risk of turning this into a long podcast we should probably wrap this thing up i didn't get a chance to say my favorite tap album yet all right put it in i'll just kept talking i wasn't going to interrupt okay all right do it man do it I thought you said that. Yeah. All right. No, 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 oh, no. Uh, I don't know. Keep it short and sweet. Soundtrack. Why would you pick anything else? Exactly. Now I get my favorite. Out. <laughs> all right, then now we will wrap this thing up, put a bow on it and hope that anybody likes it, enjoys it. Yeah. We do have a Facebook page. This will be posted there. Check us out on Facebook. Like us. Like I said, we're going to probably post some pictures from TR's extensive Spinal Tap collection on there so you can check it out. And you can also, in the future, look for new episodes there. We'll be posting them there. And uh, I I envy us. (laughs) I do too. People should envy us. I envy us. (laughs) Why? Why do you envy us? No, that's in Spinal Tap. They talk about at the end of the tour. Yeah, so... I missed it. It's all right. That's Um, okay. All right, then. Until next time. Talk to you guys next time. Rock and roll. Rock and roll. Hello, Cleveland. Hopefully we don't end up in the where are they now bin. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Yes. All right, gentlemen. Until next time. Next time. Rock on.